0: Welcome tonight. Good to have all of you. And uh, I pray God's blessing on his word. Uh, May the Lord Jesus be with us as we look into the book of Romans. This incredibly powerful revelatory work. Uh, Lord, I pray in Jesus name that you will build us up in the faith as we learn how to walk with you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Now we are in chapter 14 this time. As we take our walk down the Roman road, we're going to be looking at something that um, I have taught on many times in my life. It's a very important uh, concept, principle, truth that believers need to understand, and that is the principle of the weaker brother. And last time we saw that government is ordained by God to restrain evil by providing national and local safety, and that's why government has been given to deliver the mail and keep us safe from enemies without and enemies within. And that's why government was given. And though imperfect and sometimes evil itself, God still has his way in the outworking of history through the governments that are established. Now, this time, uh, as we get into chapter 14, Paul discusses excuse me the principle of the weaker brother. Now, Love will see to it, says Paul, that those who are weaker in the faith will not be caused to stumble by our behavior. Uh, so that's the concept of the weaker brother, the principle of the weaker brother. We all need to get this. He's really taking us now into um, just natural, uh, everyday, day in and day out, walking out the Christian faith in practical ways. As a matter of fact, what we're looking at tonight uh, is the way we do local church. This is, this is the way the church needs to be behaving, uh, understanding the principle of the weaker brother. So the problem of the weaker brother, who is the weaker brother? All right. The weaker brother has a problem, and that problem is that he often sees himself as the stronger brother, although he, he's really not. Uh, the weaker brother is the one who abstains from certain things and, and thinks you should too. He judges by appearances, and he fails to distinguish between the outward act and the inward attitude. And we're going to expand on all of that tonight as we go on. Because someone does something with which the weaker brother disagrees, the weaker brother at once concludes that this person's motives must be wrong. He must be wrong. Paul says, first, the weaker brother is to be accepted confidently. He's to be accepted, all right? Verse one, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. Don't get into an endless argument with someone who thinks that something is wrong if it's, if it's really not. Don't argue with them. No questions are to be asked of him about his scruples, nor are those who are strong in the faith to argue with him about them. Now, it's not that you shouldn't try to Minister what is a more balanced message, a more balanced uh, truth, but don't descend into arguing with them, all right? Now, here's the background. Here's why Paul is going into this. In the church at Rome, there were Christians who had come out of really dark paganism, and these young Christians were shocked when they saw Jewish Christians eating meat that had been offered to idols, Okay? Here's a Christian eating something offered to an idol. They can't believe it. They're they're shocked that a Christian is doing this. Uh, To them, to buy this meat in the marketplace uh, and eat it was the same as contributing to idolatry. And so they stumbled over the liberty that a more mature Christian had. Now, the Jewish believers who were strong in the faith thought that such scruples were nonsense. So you shouldn't be having a problem with me eating uh, this meat that is offered to an idol because I know the idol is nothing. And so you ought to know that too and not be bothered by what I'm doing. But the bottom line is uh, to eat meat offered for public sale, even though it had been offered to an idol, uh, did not constitute idolatry. Now that was the fact. Paul stepped into the controversy, and he advised the stronger brethren not to judge or come against or come down on the weaker brother, nor to argue with him. He was not to be mocked or ridiculed in the local fellowship. So we would say in our day uh, not to major on minors, and that's what the weaker brother or sister do. They, They major on minors and often minor on majors, all right? So Jesus would say, don't strain at a gnat and swallow a cam- camel. Don't have major fights over minor issues. Don't allow yourself to be pulled into an argument or some heated debate over something that is a non-essential, okay? Don't do it. Don't lose a brother over a needle in a haystack, because if you get in an argument with them about it, and you feel like, well, you ought to know what I know. And if you don't embrace what I've embraced as a more mature believer, then, then something's wrong with you. And they can literally be driven out of the church. The weaker brother can. So the message is, no, don't do this. Be, be patient with them. And we're going to look at that more in just a moment. Paul went on to say that the weaker brother should not only be accepted confidently, but also considerately consideration for other people's viewpoints is the outward manifestation of how love conducts itself, all right? This does not mean that we're to agree with everything uh, someone says or does, and it certainly doesn't mean that the church should not call a sin, sin. But that's not what we're talking about here, all right? We're talking about essentials and non-essentials. Here's what it does mean. It means that uniformity is is not imperative. That is, uniformity is not a must to be able to all be in the same church together, all right? We don't have to believe exactly alike, nor do we all have to behave exactly alike. Uh, St. Augustine wrote, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. That's great. That's probably the most famous thing Augustine ever said, so let's look at it. In essentials, you've got to have unity. What are some of the essentials? The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for our sins. Nothing else can cover your sins but that. That's an essential. Christ died on the cross for me and for you. No one else died for us, and no one else was the sacrifice for us. That's an essential. The Bible is the Word of God. That's an essential. There is a heaven, there is a hell. That's an essential. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's an essential. But non-essentials are like: should women wear pants or or dresses? Uh, Should women wear makeup? Should a woman wear her hair in a bun or should she wear it down? Um, Non-essentials. You know, can I? Can I? Should I Do I have to dress in a suit to come to church, or can I dress in jeans to come to a church? Should the church be painted blue, red, yellow, white, brown, whatever? These are all non-essentials. In other words, our salvation and walk with Christ doesn't depend on any of those things. That's a non-essential. So Augustine says, in essentials, you you do have to have unity. But in non-essentials, liberty. You know, if that's your belief and it's a non-essential, go for it. I don't have to believe that particular non-essential like you do, and I can still fellowship with you because it's a non-essential. And then in all things, we walk in love, all right? Now, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14 with the principle of the weaker brother. God does not pour all people into the same mold. We have people that come to our church with blue hair, pink hair, Uh, silver hair, no hair, all right? Uh, And somebody that has the pink hair or the blue hair, that's their choice. Uh, You know, that's a non-essential. I don't disfellowship somebody over something like that, okay? We're not all to be poured into the same mold. How boring that would be if we were all plain vanilla, right? Now, verses 2 to 3, Paul says, for instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. Meat, vegetables, fish, lobster, crawdads, shrimp, you know, anything. But another believer with a sensitive conscience is only going to eat vegetables. He's a vegan, all right? Now, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. If I take a vegan brother or sister to lunch and I get lobster and they only order vegetables, big deal, It's a non-essential. It doesn't bother me. I'm going to enjoy my lobster. They're going to enjoy their vegetables. And that's good because we have unity at the cross in the love of God. Um, We're all God's children by being born again. All right. He goes on to say, in these cases, we should live and let live. Verse 4, who are you to condemn someone else's servants? They are responsible to the lord so let him judge whether they are right or wrong and with the lord's help they'll do what is right and they will receive his approval they're not my servants they're the lord's servants all right so god says paul will help them along into greater liberty as they progress and mature in the faith now next paul deals not with what you eat or drink but with the issue of days or special days. He says in verse 5, in the same way, some think that one day is more holy than another day, while others think that every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose, that's acceptable. Now, here's the idea. Paul is saying that there's wide latitude for the exercise of freedom in your, your personal devotion to the Lord. We're not to be hung up about which day is the holiest or if there is any difference at all in any day of the week. For instance, Sundays are when most Christians in the West, in, in America, uh, attend church. But to me, i got to tell you personally, each day should be just as holy to the Lord. Now, I preach on Sunday, we meet on Sunday, but i got to tell you, in, in my thinking, Monday is as holy as Sunday I should walk with Christ on Tuesday as strongly as I did on Sunday. There's nothing uh, less holy on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday than Sunday. Every day is God's day. And the Bible says, this is the day the Lord has made. So, in my thinking, every day should be as holy as the next. But for some people, Sunday is, is the big day. All right? Some consider Christmas or Easter. The holiest days of the year but for me they too are essentially the same i love christmas uh it's my favorite time of the year as it is many of you i love celebrating the the birth of christ uh when god entered the world via the virgin birth i love that time of year but i gotta tell you christmas sunday is no holier to me than any sunday in july all right uh some feel the Sabbath is on Saturday, not Sunday. You know, Seventh-day Adventists uh, fall into that category. But if that's what you believe, all that really matters is that you do worship him, not which day you choose to do it collectively as a gathered church body. So verse 6, those who worship the Lord on a special day, Do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God, right? So the significance of a person's conduct is not so much what other people think about it. What really matters is what does the Lord think about it? And if the Lord can, amen, your walk, your habits, your lifestyle, and he can put his approval on it, then you know what? Uh, it doesn't matter what other people think. Even though there's diversity in non essentials, unity is still not impossible. No, it's very possible. We have a very diverse congregation of people from every different background. We've got every denomination represented here Baptist, Methodist, Assembly of God, uh, Pentecostal, Holiness charismatic, uh, you name it, Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, you name the denomination, uh, we've got representatives of those denominations here. Okay, Great diversity, but guess what? We have unity because we worship the same Lord, are washed in the same blood, and are going to the same heaven. Amen? Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both The living and of the dead. Um, So verses 7 to 8, let's read them. For we don't live for ourselves and we don't die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and Lord of the dead. So none of us live to ourselves. We live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die unto the Lord. So if we live, we live to him. If we die, we die to him. We are the Lord's at all times, in all places, for all time. All right? The whole point of chapter 14 is that the believer is under the control of the Lord. He cannot choose either the manner or the time of his death. Nor, indeed, does death alter his relationship with the Lord. Differences... Of opinion fade into insignificance when death enters the picture. Amen. Beyond the grave, the lordship of Christ is universally acknowledged. And when we get to glory, it will be our greatest joy to cast our crowns at his feet. Amen. What a day that'll be. We'll have crowns, rewards for how we lived, if indeed we lived for him while we were on this earth. But when we see him, we'll take the crowns and throw them at his feet and bow down. And the book of Revelation shows an innumerable multitude of people of all backgrounds, races, colors, and creeds, worshiping the Lord, casting their crowns at his feet. Amen? Now next, Paul deals with the issue of criticizing the weaker brother. All right? As stated... The weaker brother is to be accepted into the fellowship without discussion or debate. And yet there always lurks the temptation to be critical. You know, would you look at them over there or look at him over there and look at that hair or look at the way they're dressed. Look at those tattoos. Uh, look at this. Look at that. Boy, they just, they're so different from me. No, let me tell you, heaven is going to be filled with people who are utterly different from each other on earth. That's the way heaven's going to be. Like I just said, every race, every color, every creed, every financial background, every... It, listen, heaven is going to be filled with people who, on earth, lived totally different lives, had totally different backgrounds, totally different upbringings, totally different everything. But we're one in Christ, one at the cross. So in the first place, it's purposeless to criticize Look at verses 10 through 12. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 11. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Please catch that last sentence. Each of us are going to give an account of himself to God. Now, let me tell you what that means. The judgment he's talking about here is not a judgment for sins uh, because every believer has been forgiven of all their sins. They've been washed away, removed from us as far as the east is from the west, all right? So he's not talking about sins, but he is talking about our works. Now, watch this very carefully. Our sins have been judged at Calvary and are remembered no more forever. However, every work must be brought into judgment. Everything we do, while God gives us time on earth, how we used our time, how we served Christ, how we served others, if we obeyed his call in our lives, if we bore fruit, if we prayed and it made a difference, if we poured Jesus into someone else, if others were influenced by Christ through us. How we spent the time and the energy and the gifts that God gave us, all right, how we spent them is called works. And every work of the believer is going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the bema. B-E-M-A, judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians three, twelve to 14. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, that's talking about the Day of Judgment, capital D, the day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive reward. Everybody ought to say out loud reward, because listen, there are going to be varying degrees of rewards divvied out at the judgment seat of Christ after the church has been raptured um, based on how we as Christians glorify God in our life, all right? How we served him, how we, as I just said, used our time, energy, and gifts for his glory, all right? So he says, we're going to receive a reward. But verse 15, if it's burned up, if it was wood, hay, hay, and straw, if we live for ourselves, we didn't really serve Christ. And there's a lot of believers out there, a lot of people who have put their faith in Christ. I got to tell you, I've been a pastor long enough, a very long time, 38 years actually I've been a pastor. And so I've really seen the church. I've observed the church for a very long time. And let me tell you, I've seen a lot of people get saved, say, Jesus, forgive me, come into my heart. But then they go out and they live very carnal lives. They don't really uh, live for Christ much. Um, They may come to church from time to time, but they don't give their time. They don't give their energy. They don't give their gifts. They don't use the gifts God gives. They don't even bother finding out what gifts God did give them. They live pretty much shallow Christian lives, just nothing to write home about, right? And so at the end of their life, they don't have a whole lot to show for having been saved. You know, Jesus said, some bear a hundredfold fruit, some 60, some 30, well, if it can digress that way, we, we can carry it further. Some 10, some 5, some 1. Okay? So the works will be burned up. they wood, hay, and stubble. And he says, you will still go to heaven, but so as by fire. You miss your reward. That's why I tell people, listen, if you're a Christian, live for him. Go for it with all the gusto you've got. Give him your youth. Give him your adulthood. Give him your latter years. Serve Christ your whole life. I'm so eternally grateful, and I mean this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But I was saved at 16, uh, and I really, I mean, in a major, huge way, fully, as much as I knew how, sold out to him at 18, I was preaching by 19, and by God's grace, with his help, and believe me, with his mercy, I've been allowed to serve God the majority of my life. And I'm so thankful for that. I can't bear the thought if I'd spent, you know, what he gave me on myself, in the world, you know, living for the flesh, no, no. Uh, and, and I pray that God helps me, uh, you know, <clears throat> in whatever I have left to hit the bullseye and give him all I've got and, and leave a footprint for God. And I want to urge you, uh, all of you that are listening here on Wednesday night or by radio later, dear friends, if you're his, live for him so that, so that your works are gold and silver, and precious stones. God forbid that they would be wood, hand and stubble that burns up at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 12 and 13. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. If we turn the searchlight onto our own hearts, we'll find plenty, uh, plenty to keep us humble before the Lord without being overly occupied with other people, all right? So uh, even Jesus advised this, take the plank out of your own eye first. Get that two by four out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly enough to remove your brother's speck of dust. Now let's move on. Paul says that in view of the certain coming judgment seat of Christ, Our decision should be to avoid at all costs doing anything that would hinder a brother in the exercise of his faith. How far are we to go in seeking to accommodate ourselves to the special quibbles of the weaker brother? Paul places the responsibility directly on the shoulders of the stronger brother. He says, in tolerating the differences in the life of the weaker brother, our attitude is not to be, I have to tolerate him. Or, well, I guess I ought to tolerate him, but I want to tolerate him because he will mature. I'm not going to blow him out of the saddle for a non-essential. They are not to be dealt with legalistically, but rather in love and understanding. All right, Because we once also were immature and had our own little uh, uh idiosyncrasies and uh, hang-ups about non-essentials. Now, in tolerating uh, the uh, the life of the weaker brother, he says first, Paul emphasizes the principles of our liberty in Christ and begins by discussing the rights of a free conscience. Very important. Look at verse 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean of itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. While conscience is not an infallible guide, it is wrong to go against your own conscience. You shouldn't do it. The stronger brother should not teach the weaker one to go against his conscience. Why? He should teach him instead to educate his conscience by the word of God. So here's the younger brother. He thinks that eating meat is wrong, and so he's a vegan for whatever reason. All right, let's go back to Paul's day. Christians thought that eating something offered to idols, a meat offered, was wrong. So does that mean the one who knows the idol is nothing should take the weaker brother and say, look, eat this? Because I'm telling you right now, it's not wrong. But until the weaker brother is convinced of that in their own faith, it's wrong to lead them into it. All right? Paul says, don't do that. But show them what the Bible says and then let them come to their own time and place where they are set free from the hang-up about not eating that particular kind of meat, knowing that the idol means nothing. All right? So don't bring a weaker brother into defiling his conscience because if he's not eating it of faith, it is sin to him. All right? Very, very important. It is through the work of God's word and his grace that we are delivered from all the fuss and bother of empty religion and ritual. This is our birthright as children of God, but it's usually enjoyed only by those who have grown into Christian adulthood. Yet an even higher law comes into play next. And that's this. Love requires self-limitations for the sake of others. Verse 15. So if your brother, the weaker brother, is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love if you eat it in front of him. Don't by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Now the familiar question is this, am I my brother's keeper? Are you telling me that I can't even do what I know I'm free to do because of my weaker brother? And the answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Every believer is his brother's keeper and must refrain from anything that would lead him astray, lead him to go against his weaker conscience or make him stumble. To have a clear conscience in that which the mature Christian allows in his own life is one thing. In other words, if I'm home alone and I want to eat meat offered to an idol because I know the idol means nothing then I can eat it alone at home. But don't eat it out there in public if a weaker brother is going to see you and stumble over your liberty, okay? So to exercise that freedom to the peril of another man's soul is something else. No believer should exercise personal privilege over church-wide responsibility. Verse 16, don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Because if it makes your brother stumble, then what is good to you became evil to him. If a person exercises his stronger faith to the detriment of a weak brother, he's giving the wrong impression to him about the Christian life. I'll tell you a true story. This is true. Uh, One of my heroes in the faith is uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s. Uh, probably the greatest pastoral preacher uh, to ever live, at least in modern times. Uh, Spurgeon was a true wonder. He he was just a, I mean, everything about Spurgeon, he's just one of my spiritual heroes, all right? But Charles Spurgeon, for the longest time, when he was pastoring in, in the massive city of London, and he had the biggest church in London, and yet he smoked cigars. And, of course, there were no cars. There were only horse-driven carriages. And Charles Spurgeon would be drawn up to his church, pulled up to his church in a carriage, a horse-drawn carriage on a Sunday morning. And, it would, and without fail, he would be pulled up in front of the church with a cigar sticking out of his mouth. And that's because he did not consider smoking a cigar sin. This is before uh, the connection of cancer had ever been made uh, this is when it was not viewed the way tobacco and nicotine and addiction and all of that uh, are viewed now. So he thought it was just fine, and he smoked cigars with a good conscience. Then one day, he discovered that a tobacco firm was advertising themselves as the brand that Spurgeon smokes. Well, when he heard that, he quit smoking from that day forward. Because it went all over the world. And they were using him to push tobacco. So he said, I can't do that. So he quit. Because he did not want to make people around the world stumble over what he considered to be an okay habit. That's just one example. Look at verses 17 to 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. But it's righteousness and it's peace. And it's joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So living according to the principle of love is good, both to God and men, and particularly towards the weaker brother. Verses 19 and 22. Therefore let us pursue the things that make for peace, and the things by which we may edify another. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food, Uh, the weaker brother being the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense, offending his conscience. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is the one who does not uh, condemn himself in what he approves or practices in his own life. You know, if your conscience isn't convicting you and your conscience is being guided by the word, then happy are you, all right? Because you have a placid conscience, which is incredibly valuable. Best sleeping pill in the world is a placid conscience. Always live in agreement with your conscience, which is to be fine-tuned by the Word of God. Last verse, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he doesn't eat from faith, because whatever is not from faith, it's sin. The man is doubly happy, who not only has an easy conscience as to what he permits in his own life, but also has an easy conscience knowing uh, that he has truly been his brother's keeper. in this good stuff? So, Let me encourage you to think about this. I don't know how much you've given thought to the principle of the weaker brother, but I want to encourage you to consider it, pray about it, and let's all stand together and let's pray that God will help us uh, to be not only a diverse church, but that we would have unity in the midst of diversity, in the midst of non-essentials. We have unity with essentials and diversity in non-essentials. And in all things, walking in love, can we pray together, stand with me now let 's lift our hands to the Lord and say, "Dear Jesus, thank you for this powerful chapter on how to walk in Christian love, and we pray you will help us, Lord, to be patient and understanding uh with the weaker brother, not condescending, not um uh, highbrowed, not um critical, but Lord, understanding and loving and kind." Uh, sharing your truth with them in much patience and not drawing them into our liberty until they have been made ready by the liberty that the word of God will bring to them. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.